it blows my mind how much money the federal government spent just demolishing entire blocks of cities. And now we're spending a lot of money trying to piece them back together again. You're listening to Good Is In The Details. I'm Gwendolyn Dolsky. And I'm Rudy Sallow. And this is the podcast where we learn what we didn't know we didn't know in the spirit of Socrates, all part of The Good Life. Learning more about The Good Life, right, Rudy? Learning You can't just nod on a podcast recording. <laughs> I can't. I can nod because when I hear The Good Life, I, there's so many things that go into my mind, but the reality is it's about all about leading a better life. And with our guest today, we talk about how infrastructure and focus on infrastructure and focus on climate-related infrastructure and inequities in infrastructure and remedying those situations could lead to many people living better lives. That's right. We've got Liz Farmer, journalist pro. She's absolutely amazing. And I love these conversations because it's not just about infrastructure, but it's all of the implications, the resources, the causal factors, what happens after infrastructure, what happens if you neglect infrastructure, and all of the cultural and sociological implications. Okay, and let's talk with Liz Farmer. Do you want to get started? I do. Okay. <laughs> Liz Farmer, welcome back to the show. Now, you are our third guest who's been on here four times now. It's so good having recurring wow. guests, isn't it? Actually, I'm sorry. I'm, yeah, I, it I, is. I, I feel so privileged. Is it four times or is this not her third time? Oh, oops. Maybe it's the third yeah, time. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's her, it's pretty sure, I'm pretty sure it's her <laughs> third time. Wait a minute, time. wait a minute. I'll just right, save this audio for I'll save you this know, audio for the fourth time I, she's I, on. I, 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 I'll I, think, this I, I think she might actually know the answer to this. Liz, is this your third or your fourth time? Oh my gosh, I, I don't know the answer. <laughs> it was no wait, it was the gig economy. You no, know, I think sexy infrastructure. Third. Okay, it's the third. All right. It's all good. I love correcting you on okay. here. Please do not this. <laughs> well, welcome back. We're gonna be talking about you know, your work and journalism. And I mean, the things that you're writing about infrastructure, this is like one of Rudy's dreams. He loves talking about this stuff. So let's do it. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Liz. So what's, uh, <laughs> Where do you want to start? I'll start. So there's, there's a lot going on in our world of infrastructure and local government, obviously interest rates and inflation are kind of throwing everything for a tizzy. At some point today, I'd like to talk about your um, cryptocurrency article. We don't need to talk about that there. Although that market is in a tizzy. <laughs> Let's start with the good news first, which is back in November, you pointed out that as a part of the um, infrastructure bill, there is some money set aside for reconnecting communities. I saw last week that the USDOT has actually put out information and things about the grants and the program and everything. So while there is a lot of problems with the infrastructure bill and a lot of things that have gotten stuck in Congress and the Senate, that seems to be going forward. Why does that matter? Mm -hmm. Why why should anybody care about reconnecting communities or reconnecting downtowns? Like if you can give us a little bit of the history of it and why this is important now, what that actually means. Yeah. I mean, in any major city, I think we've all had that experience of being near the really super loud freeway overpass and how disturbing it is. And it's, you know, and it cuts right in the middle through a city and it, it literally is like a scar 
cut through cities. If you look at maps, Washington, D.C. is a really good example because I'm super familiar with it. But there's this highway that um, they had originally planned to run straight through D.C., cutting underneath the Capitol building and then coming up above ground and then going straight north, essentially dividing the city into two. Not coincidentally, on the east side of this freeway was the is is and was the primarily black part of town. And on the west side of the freeway was the, at the time, you know, it was the black part of town. But what happened is that part of the city started becoming whiter and whiter. In DC, that, you know, whiter also came with being more economically advantaged, uh, affluent, all that stuff. A lot of real estate development got dumped into that part on the left side of the freeway. The right side, the east side of the freeway, virtually ignored up until recently. And so that story is repeated over and over and over and over. And just one last thing on that. I remember it's noticeable and it's, it's when I was in Tulsa some years ago reporting on that city's race riot back in 1921 and how they were dealing with it at the time. So the neighborhood that that occurred in is called Greenwood, also referred to as Black Wall Street. And that neighborhood is utterly gutted. What killed that neighborhood was not necessarily the race riot that happened in 1921. Certainly the entire area was demolished, but Black Wall Street, Greenwood was rebuilt within five years or so after that. What killed that neighborhood was the freeway they built that ran straight through it. All of the raising wow. that occurred afterwards. Let's take that from a historical perspective. So what we're talking about are freeways, highways, everything that was built, you know, pretty much from the 1950s on, once Eisenhower came into office and the United States decided, okay, we really need to connect all of our vast cities uh, for, for defense purposes. They built the, the highway system and that highway system, mm -hmm. you know, billions upon billions of dollars, one of the primary modes of where all, most of our transportation funding goes to is in highways. So prior to the 1950s, mm -hmm. downtowns were, they weren't so disconnected, if you will. They weren't these islands where all of these highways kind of led to, right? It was yeah. kind of a part of the greater community. But starting in the 1950s and going into the 1960s, the 1970s, heck, even into the 1980s, I mean, a great example of this is, you know, the 105 freeway, which is mm -hmm. a well-known freeway. Even if you don't live in Los Angeles, if you've ever seen the movie Speed, that's the freeway that was, you can see oh, in the yeah. film, it's still being built during the filming of that movie. That was in the, into the 1990s. And the 105 freeway really just split apart a huge historically Black and Latino neighborhoods, you know, kind of broke it up. Mm -hmm. and so it's the freeways that change things. These downtowns that have the historic cores and the historic areas weren't like that until the freeways. Is, is that a fair way to say when we're talking about the story? Is that the story that we're talking about? It is. And, you know, and we really are talking about city downtowns. You know, when you were talking about that divide that the freeway can create in structurally, I mean, it's sort of like the old, you know, the old term other side of the tracks, you know, how railroads would have a similar effect. But really, it's our reliance on the car and the way that we just carved up downtowns and obliterated a lot of the, you know, original infrastructure that was there. It blows my mind how much money the federal government spent just demolishing entire blocks of cities. And now we're spending a lot of money trying to piece them back together again. And let's hope that we don't decide to knock them down in another 50 years. <laughs> and speaking of the a lot of money, um, have you been following the pilot program and what are its goals? What is it trying to do? Like, what is the end goal here that they're, they're, they're trying to 
reconnect. Yeah, this reconnecting communities program is super interesting because I think it's indicative of what a lot of the goals of this infrastructure bill are, which is it's not just about building stuff. It's not just about let's reinvest in stuff we haven't invested in in forever. It's about how can we fix the wrongs of the past through the built environment. And just as, you know, tied in with that is climate justice or environmental justice, you know, health. A lot of the way that we have zoned cities, the way that we have built stuff has by default ended up segregating populations, ended up and creating different zoning for different neighborhoods. You know, industrial neighborhoods have been built close to poorer housing, that kind of stuff. And it all leads to different health outcomes. It's why you have like kids on one side of town having a life expectancy 10 years less than wow. you know, kids on the other side of town. And so what Reconnecting Communities seeks to do is obviously it's not going to fix all of that, but it's a step towards it by giving money to localities that already have plans to either tunnel a freeway that's above ground or to cover over it to basically cover up the freeway somehow, or maybe even demolish it, you know, that's an option too. But essentially those two sides of the track, the two sides of the freeway, connect them back again so that there isn't this scar. And so that there is a flow between those two parts of the town of the city and that there isn't this physical barrier. The idea is that, you know, again, obviously that's not gonna make everything better all at once, but without that physical barrier, it allows more things to happen. It allows, you know, more connectivity between two important parts of town. And this is all like in the notice of intent and all the literature around this program. The idea is so that, you know, disadvantaged communities that were directly impacted by this scar in the middle of the city can have better access to transportation, to services, all that stuff. It's really about all of that. But, you know, right now, it, you know, on its face, we're covering up freeways. <laughs> Yeah, there's historical precedents for actually tearing down some freeways. I know San Francisco did that in like the 1990s. The Embarcadero, right? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Mm -hmm. It just goes to show you, yes, I nerd out on infrastructure. Yes, it's part of my day job. But (laughs) when I say it it literally impacts everybody's life, impacts it positively, goods are be able to be, we get all all of our our food, our groceries, our TVs, all the things that keep us distracted or, or whatever because of infrastructure. But it also can cause lasting harm. And so I do want people to rethink about infrastructure and its impact and its financing and and its future, because look, like now we're going back and righting wrongs that have occurred. Okay, we're smarter now. We have more data. We have more information to see the impacts of infrastructure. Can can we rebuild better? And I get it. I know that President Biden had his build back better program and that's getting shot down. I'm I'm not making stuff up that's that's like brand new. I guess I want our listeners that don't normally think about infrastructure or don't normally think about where their taxes go to really think about it this time around to make better improvements. Mm-hmm. It's extraordinary that um, in, in my engineering ethics class, we talk about how all designs, that they really reflect a value. It's never just the thing. It comes into existence because of a vision and a cultural attitude and an idea of what's important. And I give this example, which isn't 
infrastructure are a great feat in engineering, but it gives the point is that there was a baby changing table installed in the men's bathroom at Nordstrom in the nineties. And a baby changing table is, you know, the structure of it, the weight of it. Okay. All of that is objective. The fact that it never existed is interesting. And then the fact that it did exist Hmm. is redefining what it means to be a parent and what it means to be a man. Because the reason there was no baby Mm -hmm. changing table in the men's bathroom is because why would a man ever be alone with a baby? That was the question. (laughs) So in just that small design change, you are redefining what it means to be a man and a parent in the same way with the infrastructure that this idea of breaking apart society or segregating society through infrastructure. I'm wondering if one of the challenges in correcting this is that there does seem to be this denial that racism exists in the very structure. You know, there seems to be this, to me, I hear Mm -hmm. denials about any kind of systemic problems. And is there some kind of a resistance or are all political parties on board with infrastructure, but they don't want to talk about the racial, the, the inequity that has come as a result of that, that has lasting implications? I'm thinking about it because I heard a politician yeah. in the South who was talking about, um, and he's he's a black man, and he was saying he's very conservative, talking to a conservative audience, and he's saying, you know, America is not racist, for example, and then he talks about his own story, and there seems to be this mm-hmm. confusion that I see in that if somebody, a person of color, a man, a woman, that when they excel, that that is supposed to be evidence that there is no systemic racism. But for instance, if I were to say, <laughs> well, I have a PhD, therefore there is no sexism and our vice president is a woman, that doesn't mean that every single day that women don't go through some sort of um, sexism, that there aren't some sort of barriers there. So there's this difference between, I want to say- what is excellence and what is systemic. One of the issues is that how do you how do you demonstrate that there is a systemic problem and what you've done so well is that you've given the numbers, you know, or even when you're talking about life expectancy, that there is this change. But I'm wondering if there is any resistance to changes in infrastructure or do we just have to not talk about race in order to get both parties on board? I'd like to hear your <laughs> thoughts on that. You know, for the record, I absolutely 100% believe there is structural racism in kind of everywhere, but certainly within long-standing institutional things like government, education, higher education, that sort of thing. There are definitely people who don't like to either talk about it or don't believe that it is a thing. There was an email exchange I was part of not too long ago over a piece in which I referenced structural racism and one of the readers that really, it he just did not like that. He didn't think it was a thing. And it's not so much, you know, it's, this person is very smart, you know, very accomplished. And so there's definitely still that debate and people are uncomfortable with it. And I think, this is just my opinion, but I think there's a lot of conflating between racism or someone being racist and structural racism. The way that everything is kind of rigged, not on purpose, maybe it was certainly 200 years ago on purpose. And that's kind of the point. The people who were in charge first, which is white men, property owning white men, have had the longest run at the monopoly board. So they have the most stuff. And then the more people you let in after that, uh, sure that they have stuff, but they don't have as much stuff. And that's kind of it. And and I can't take credit for that analogy. I heard it (laughs) several years ago. Um, But I mean, that's kind of it. The people who've been in charge the longest have the greatest power. And that is why there is structural racism and classism and all the other things. That's reflected in something like a freeway. So exactly. So how, 
I guess, and I, yes, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to go off on a tangent here. I mean, that seems so, what you just said seems so obvious. To me. It, that's just a fact. Like, hey, look, mm. like it was, it was white males. You, you guys got the property, you got all the power, you got everything. I guess the issue is, is like, yeah, we did, you know, it's not my fault. It was so-and-so's fault. You know, why should I quote unquote be punished for it? And Quinn, this goes to your question as to getting, you know, both sides to agree to changes I don't know. I, I don't know how to express things where one side doesn't feel like they're being put on the spot or being called racist or, or things are being taken away from them in their minds unfairly for things that quote unquote they didn't do. It's very, very difficult because that is so difficult to answer. I think that we do see things in Congress right now that are at a loggerheads. I don't know the Build Back Better bill or any, any bill that wants to address these inequities, I don't know what happens because clearly one party is it wants to right the wrongs and the other party, they might give some lip service to, yeah, okay, there might be some wrongs, but you know, you shouldn't punish us or do anything. That's where I, I get scared about moving forward. There's not enough discussion between the blues and the reds right now. They're so focused on getting yeah. reelected all the time and raising campaign funds that the real issues that we should care about, like infrastructure, because it impacts literally everybody's life, is not moving forward. And they take issues. One side is, you know, climate change is the, the blue side of the fence. But the red side doesn't want to do anything about climate change. And then it kind of addresses things, Liz, that we were talking about with climate equity and mm -hmm. Let's making talk about impacts that. and differences. Yeah, I yeah, want to talk sure. about that because I heard on a, it was on a conservative network where they were saying, you know, we polled Americans and they don't care about climate change. And I was just thinking, you know what, ask... <laughs> Ask, ask the people in um, the UK right now who are melting or ask the people who have lost their homes in the United States and Texas to flooding or in Kansas or in New Jersey to like these extreme weather conditions. And then of course, in California, my home state where we've got fires now every, every year is the worst. So maybe because climate change or discussions about climate have this buzz feel about them to be very blue issues. I don't really think that people, you know, all over aren't actually feeling the effects of it and complaining and wondering what's going on. And it's unfortunate that it's become political. So I would love to mm -hmm. know, since you wrote about climate equity, just an explanation of what in the world that means and what does that look like? Climate equity or environmental justice is this idea that there are disadvantaged communities. Having read the portion of your article, there are one tenet of climate equity is that if you do live in these downtowns and, and you're surrounded by concrete, things tend to be hotter, right? Where you are and they're, mm -hmm. and they're, they're trying to make things a little bit more environmentally friendly where you are surrounded by concrete and you live in a downtown and they're, they're trying to bring more greening into that space because as we know, as a result of climate change, the world is getting hotter and temperatures are getting hotter. If you're living in these areas, you're, you're just going to be hotter. So they're, one of the things that they're trying to do is to make these centralized areas a little cooler by bringing in some, some, some greening. I know that's just one small tenant of climate equity, right? Is that some yeah. people live in areas where they're more impacted by rising temperatures versus other people. Is that one of the things about it? And who can afford to take care of it? Like we can yeah. afford air conditioning, right? Exactly. We can afford to pay a yeah. little bit more for things, but the people that it's, that it's impacting, they don't have the same amount of money. It, it reminds me of 
when smoking became um, illegal indoors. And I, you know, I've even told my students, there used to be a smoking section on the plane and they're just absolutely mm-hmm. flabbergasted oh by gosh, it. Yeah. And the whole <laughs> logic of, well, you can just sit over here, but the very nature of smoke, of course, is that it goes everywhere and it impacts everyone. And if you're a server in a restaurant doing an eight hour shift, you could inhale the equivalent of two packs in that shift. So it needed to be, um, need to be illegal. And it seems to be a similar type of logic. I, I think when it comes to the environment that there's no such thing as a boundary anymore, or this is your country and this is my country. This is your state. And this is my state. It's like the inside of a restaurant with smoking. You have an issue here. It just, the nature of it goes everywhere. But the problem is where it gets yeah. heated or let's say in places in the United States, when there are issues as a result of climate change, we can afford to build. But if it's impacting other areas of the world, then you don't have that same amount of funding or resources. Yeah. Am I close? And or? I think like what you two said, just kind of putting it all together, that was super helpful because it's making me think that, okay, so environmental justice or environmental injustice maybe is some people can afford to sidestep the really harmful impacts of climate change, of pollution, of the environment in which they live. And other people cannot afford that because of systemic inequities, because of where they live, because of how much money they make. And because of systemic inequities, the folks that can't afford that are primarily, you know, our black and brown friends. And that's that's kind of it. It's, it's about what you can afford to avoid, really. I mean, climate change is happening. Pollution is around us. Uh, and it affects some of us more than others. Bingo. Yeah, I mean, I don't. Okay, so don't judge me, but I was watching a Real Housewives. This was a while ago. It was a Beverly Hills one, and it was during. It was during the fires, and one of the one of the women, her home burned down, and you see her in her home and all of the devastation, and she's walking through it, and I mean, it's just completely gone, and she's upset, and she's just you know obviously upset. But then the next scene of her is in her other home. mourning the home that burned down and she's in the other (laughs) home and she's wanting this sympathy from everyone. And finally, somebody said, you know, you have like three other houses. And so of course, I mean, I'm not okay with somebody's home being burned to the ground. That's, that's (laughs) awful, but uh, it's, she has three other homes. And she was just sitting there being like, uh. and that's what I mean by if this is your only home, then that's different. It, it impacts people differently. But I, I just wonder, I mean, I'm thinking same thing with like the race when it comes to infrastructure, if there's a denial that there's even an issue there, then it's hard to go about solving it. So is there, do you have any ways of thinking about how to talk about climate inequity, maybe without using the buzzwords that make people feel like it's a political issue instead of just an issue for all Americans to care about? Unfortunately, I think there's no talking about climate without people politicizing it the same way there's no talking about masks or viruses without people getting political. That's just been the trend of politicizing science over the last 20 years. And what is the resistance? Super frustrating. Yeah. What is the resistance? So people who are denier, like, what is it? Cause there's a passion there. There's an anger there. What is well, going on? I want to understand that position. I'll give it a try. I mean, I wrote a little bit about this in my own Forbes piece about the Lake Tahoe fire last year. And it was very interesting. I mean, Lake Tahoe, which is a very special place to be very special place to my family. It was burning. It was burning down. People literally had to escape. And there was a picture, um, South Lake Tahoe, of cars trapped on the highway and they were trapped there for five, six, seven, eight hours, getting the hell out of the basin 
and you're looking at the cars and there's just all of the, you know, everything being emitted from the cars, right? The CO2 being emitted from the cars is like, it's like, huh, that's ironic. One of the reasons why we have these wildfires while the world is getting hotter, while what we have climate impacts is, is because of CO2, because of gas powered vehicles, because of what we've done to the environment, the world's getting hotter because of oil, right? Is one, one of the energy sources. Okay, so oil companies, obviously, now they're better about it now. They're better about saying, yeah, there is an impact and we're going to work on more clean energy sources and we're going to put some of our resources, some of our research into clean energy and, and look at us, we're, we're trying to do solar power and everything. But previously it was, hey, don't tell us to stop using gas powered cars. Uh, that's the American way of life. You know, that can you imagine the impacts you would have on our profits, on our employees, on the world that we live in, if you tell us we can't build more gas-powered cars. So what do they do? They lobby. They lobby. They put more money into, they get politicians of certain parties and of other parties on their side to make the argument, uh, climate change doesn't exist, or oh, that, that's junk science. You know, forget about all that. That's one of the reasons. The reason why it's politicized is because of money, because of lobbying. And because of, you know, people start raising the alarms about jobs and the impact we try to change things. That's my take on it. And I think I probably wrote a little bit about it more eloquently in that article. But Liz, I'm sure you probably have a much better and much more eloquent take. Uh, I probably don't. But, (laughs) you know, I'm remembering I did read an article that was super well done. Can't remember who wrote it, where it was, but it did kind of get into this explanation of politicization of science and climate change in particular. We can't even say global warming, right? And then the fact that people can confuse climate with weather. Climate is a long-term trend, weather is temporary. But there is something to the fact of in the early 2000s, the more conservative, aw shucks kind of movement really started catching fire. Former President Bush was popular because he was relatable to a lot of people. He was in contrast to, even though he went to an Ivy League, but he that was not how he portrayed himself. He was a regular guy, and that was very attractive. This is kind of what the article that I can't remember anymore Um you know, kind of got into a little bit is just that that sort of branding, particularly in the the Republican Party, because President Reagan was pro-environment in in the way that Republicans were in the 80s. But, you know, at least there wasn't the debate about, you know, climate change. I remember, I mean, that's when I was a kid and there was this whole thing about refrigerators and CFCs. I mean, nobody was arguing about the hole in the ozone. No, just because let's not forget. Sorry, I I don't want to give a nod to Richard Nixon, but all those environmental bills happened yeah, under under, under Richard Nixon. So let, yeah. I mean, you know, it goes oh, to show so you some, something changed, right? To your point of mm-hmm. well, something must have happened. What happened? Mm-hmm. That's very, very true. I forgot about that. You know, and that is that is part of it, but it is sort of a phenomenon of our our anyway, the three of us, <laughs> our lifetime, in that it wasn't always like this. And it's gone from climate to a lot of other things, science in general, really, you know, and the latest iteration of that is the pandemic. Yeah, I will say I blame the internet. Once again, you know, Gwen and I were just on <laughs> Gwen and I were just on a a, a podcast, Seize the Moment podcast, where we were talking about gatekeepers and, and I raised the argument. And we're talking about gatekeepers for university, right? And the gatekeepers of information. Oh, yeah. And the fact that the internet kind of democratized or just kind of opened the floodgates of information out there. Ugh, and the reality yeah. is, 
anybody out there with money or without money, but if you have money, you can really craft whatever narrative that you want. You build the websites, you do the advertising, you get your team on your side, whatever it is that you want to promote. And then that turns in any turns into social media influencers and it turns into chat mm-hmm. rooms and it turns into this or that. So I really do. I blame the internet in that, you know, information is it's out there. You can get any kind of information that you yeah. want and you can so, craft whatever narrative that you want. I have a question then because, and this is genuine. I am just confused by West Virginia. So this is making me think about all the climate stuff. I'm just confused by a mansion. I'm confused by the position. What is the deal with coal? What is the deal with green energy? Um, Because I mean, I'm thinking about this in terms of I've, I've been to West Virginia. I have seen West Virginia. West Virginia could use some development, some infrastructure. So I am, and they have a Democrat elected senator, and yet they're a very Republican and conservative state. And it seems like this is actually would be an interesting study in the dynamics of politics and climate, because there seems to me that they're in the thick of it when it comes to how that state makes money, isn't it, through coal. So it seems to be there's more resistance Mm -hmm. And yet that state also needs a lot of development. They're behind, they're highest in like the opioid crisis. They're totally behind in education. There are so many things that could be improved and they're holding on to coal and not seeing a possibility. Now, I don't know, what are your thoughts? Because I am literally confused by the state of West Virginia. I mean, there's a real... Rudy's smiling. From the West Virginia border. I, I've only been through West Virginia accidentally on like a river rafting trip, and that was it. Liz, how I want to ask. That's how people usually end up in West Virginia is by accident. Liz, you're in Maryland, so so you're like you're like a neighbor. So I'm. This is I'm all close. Liz. I want her to answer that question. <laughs> yeah, I mean Harper's Ferry, for example, is like a probably half an hour drive for me. So I'm not that far. I've driven through Harper's Ferry is nice, but I've driven through some really depressed parts of West Virginia and. It's, you know, and they're all very clearly a member of one party. There's a lot of paraphernalia out there, shall we say. So I pulled up an article written by my colleague, Mark Funkhauser, and it's about a roadmap to a green, healthy, and equitable (laughs) economy in Appalachian beyond. Yeah, Mark is the former mayor of Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, He was the publisher at Governing, and now he's running Funkhauser and Associates. And so this article, he talks about there's a couple of public-private initiatives in Appalachia. One of them is called the Marshall Plan for Middle America. It's a regional cross-sector coalition. The idea is to drive investment in infrastructure and energy diversification. And this is located in the Ohio Valley, but again, could apply anywhere in Appalachia, including West Virginia. There's another initiative called Reimagine Appalachia, which is like a grassroots approach to rebuilding the, the region. Again, same idea, focusing on clean energy as the new economic driver. And so there are people in West Virginia, in Appalachia, in these depressed areas, uh, the coal country, working to reimagine what their future is, but they're coming up against uh, just as, you know, big force of folks who say, no, let's keep doing it how we've always done it until the coal runs out anyway. So once again, goes right back to jobs, right? Goes right, goes back to, well, how how is this going to affect my wallet my family, I got to put food on the table. I have to send my kids to school. Are you serious? You want me to go retrain myself and learn this whole new mm-hmm. 
thing and who's going to pay for that? Why would I do that? Really what it comes down to, Gwen, is money. And I'm trying to be fair to them. I really am. I'm, I'm really trying to be like, okay, I mean, I, I, I can understand yeah. where you're coming from. You're thinking about the now. You're not thinking about the future. You're not, yes, you live, maybe you live in a depressed area of your state and maybe you feel uh, powerless. Maybe you feel like, well, I'm just one person. You know, I can, I, the only thing I got to worry about is putting food on the table, et cetera, et cetera. There's got to be something more. And I think some of these pilot programs, I'm not smart. I don't know enough about legislation or, or any pilot programs about retraining people to go into green jobs. But I know that our government and other governments throughout the country Mm -hmm. are trying to get people to do more of that. Yeah, I think it is really important for people to educate themselves and be willing to do that. And I think there's hope. I I do. I really do. I really do believe that there's hope. It's not hopeless. I think it's slow going. As these people continue to get affected by climate, I think if wildfires are going to continue to impact these areas of the country and things do get hotter, maybe that'll be the impetus for people to make a change. Maybe things will get darker for a little bit before they get better. But I, I do think there's hope. But I'm, I'm just trying to be fair to that person who needs to put, you know, the food on the table. I know. And I, I mean, I guess the reason, I mean, all joking aside about West Virginia, I mean, it was something that when I saw and I was just thinking there should be so much more development here and holding on to coal. You're right. It's a short term thing. But I was just like, gosh, I think the arguments about the economy are problematic because maybe it's blue people, maybe it is people who you know are interested in environmental equity that are not making the case well enough or clear enough or reaching the right people that in the long run, not switching actually costs so much more money because of all of the damage that is done, but also all of the possibility. I mean, we don't even know where technology will bring us with clean energy, with green things. And this is just the natural course. I mean, when you think about something as simple, I mean, it's not as big as energy, but something as simple as, you know, with the iPhone or Apple. I mean, I remember going to Tower Records when I was a kid, there is, you know, there there is this difference and this openness that by having music the way that it is, it's put a lot more pressure on artists. It's opened up the market to people who are not, um, you know, it people or whatnot who have been able to have more opportunities. Same thing with a lot of, you know, bookstores that ended up closing. And you think about, well, all of the things that were lost there, the employees, the power, the publishing, but then by opening up other avenues for writing, you have a lot more writers coming in because it's just open things up. Blockbuster, no longer a thing. Netflix, and then all of this streaming has opened up people who are extremely creative to participate in creating shows. So it seems at first like, oh, we're losing these things, but the next thing is actually brought out so much more opportunity and so much more to the market. And I know it's not the same thing as coal, but I just can't help but see all of the possibilities and all of the new jobs that would be needed in growth. And the case hasn't been made. And it makes me a little bit sad. I agree with you. I talk about this. People are worried about the robots or robotics or automation or heck, even if we can ever get there, autonomous connected vehicles. Oh, people are going to lose their taxi jobs. What about the Uber drivers? No, part of Uber's Part of Uber's plan, they part of their like business plan was that uh, in a couple of years, all cars are going to be autonomous. We're not going to even need to pay these drivers anymore. We won't even need to worry about these, these 
AB5 and these employment laws in California. I mean, I, you know, I was one of the first people to say, you're, you're nuts. We're, we're not there and we're not going to be there for like 20, 30 years. But it's the same thing. Okay. If people do drive less or we don't need truckers or we don't need anything like that, what about the jobs? There's going to be plenty of jobs for servicing the robotics, for programming the robotics. Yeah. It'll free up time for people to do other things that we need. So you're, you're spot on, Gwen. I, I think all of those examples are excellent. We shouldn't fear change, but we do. We're human beings. Even us podcasting, I mean, we're obviously fabulous, but we have this opportunity to do this because- because you know the monopoly has been taken off of just just big radio stations and then that is the only thing that with this shift there's been so much more possibility for people to enter the market yeah no i look you're right you're spot on and i think the real life examples are probably coming online soon of where a coal dominated or an oil dominated or a timber dominated town has now shifted to something greener and oh wow look at that look at all the jobs look at these more high paying jobs look at these more high skilled jobs look at all the benefits once that happens i think that'll show the examples of two other people we just need those examples to come online sooner rather than later but i do think that there's hope the key is you know kind of going back to what we talked about in the beginning with equity and the infrastructure bill. So there is funding in the infrastructure bill for job training and all of the stuff that we've been talking about. But if you think about it, I mean, equity, a lot of times think about it as a synonym, you know, in terms of race, but West Virginia is a great example where the inequity is, it's all one color. The country that I've driven through, everybody's white, but think about this, the family of three kids, mom works at the grocery store, dad works at some coal plant. They're basically living hand to mouth. There's no, you know, they're relying on social security for whatever retirement, if they ever retire, kids are in public school, all that stuff. Who's got time to go get trained somewhere, even if Mm -hmm. it's for free? They need that paycheck. So the real deal has to be like what you said, Rudy, we've got to be able to, it's about money. We need to have on the job training and we cannot make it inconvenient at all for somebody in that situation because otherwise they ain't got time. They don't have money. They, they can't. That's not fair. It's not fair to ask them to do that. It just, it just isn't because of all the reasons you just laid out there. I mean, the kids got to eat. They need some money Mm. to keep the lights on. You nailed it. It comes down to the corporation doing on the job training right there on the site to help them convert over. And that's where, you know, hopefully government tax credits, something along those lines, some incentives for the company itself to spend that money. Look, companies are getting hurt by inflation too, right? And wherever inflation is affecting a lot of areas, it's not just local government, it's, it's affecting everything. So hopefully this will happen. Hopefully this won't get, this can won't get kicked down the road. Hopefully there'll be some really good government incentives that get approved so that corporations feel that this the best thing for them. Because at the end of the day, especially if they're publicly traded corporations, they are beholden to stockholders. And stockholders are always going to want to see profits mm-hmm. rising. So it's just the nature of the uh, of the capitalist system that we live in. It, it li- everything literally comes down to money. Well, Liz, I mean, something when you were just describing that, it just really hit me, the cultural dynamics and how somebody in California or even a celebrity talking about their green shit is all of a sudden it sounds so <laughs> snobby to a family or they're talking about science and all of a sudden people who let's say are not going to university and they are doing the best that they can and they're enjoying their life in their town, how snobby 
it sounds you, I mean, I'm so glad that you said that it's really hitting me because on a lot of conservative stations, they're like the cultural elite want to tell you what to do. And I'm just realizing now in my own language, making fun of West Virginia that I'm like, you know, just fix it. Just do, <laughs> just go do something else. Why not? You know, like get a Starbucks yeah. and pull it together. This is, this I mean, great. On the last episode that we recorded, it turned out that we discovered it towards the end, um, Liz, that I'm a narcissist. And now Gwen just realized she's a she's a leftist. Oh, right. not, this is awesome. <laughs> this is this is why people need to tune into like, the show. On, just go green, just really, get a garden. It's like we have a mirror in front of us. So we're vegetable. looking at all the bad things. You know, this is fantastic. I love this. Why we do you want do dirty more. energy? Get clean. <laughs> We learned about this in, oh in sophomore year. <laughs> you nailed it. You nailed, I mean, really. I mean, you, you, you. I mean, look at what Europe's it. doing. I'm telling that's, you. Yeah, right. This, <laughs> oh Europe. This, that's the problem. Talk about cultural. Is this, it's not it, just money. Yeah. It's cultural. Okay, I get it. I get it, it. There is an elitism to this that, that needs to be removed. We need to think about those people, the way that environment that Liz just talked about and help them help themselves, period. Everybody loves neat technology. That's what I'm thinking of. Like everybody is drawn to, I mean, it works in science fiction films whenever they're showing this futuristic robotics and whatnot. And it's very cool to see the possibilities. And so I'm hoping that the coolness of the technology and what it can do and what it can accomplish and how it can assist our lives will overrun the political divide. Yeah. That's the hope. That's the hope. That would be nice. <laughs> Remember, Knight, it's Knight Rider, right? Like the car that can speak and all that stuff. Yes, is I that, Like about, everybody, doesn't matter I, what politics you are. Everybody, I, everybody was like, this is very cool. I wrote about that in my second Forbes article about how, uh, how Hollywood <laughs> and has Hollywood affected our AV biases. Like when, when, we, when we think about Kit, when we think about when we see autonomous vehicles on TV, there's good and there's bad, right? There's like, you, you ever seen Christine and that's a car that could drive itself and it kills people. Man, I'm like, hey, I don't want to do that. That was the point of my second article about how people might be worried about technology, maybe without reason because of Hollywood. Really quick, Liz, another article that you touched upon was um, local governments and cryptocurrency. And you gave the example of Berkeley saying they're, they're going to do it. I did a little research into where that stands. I haven't seen where they're at. I don't know any of the players that are trying to issue those micro bonds. But have you seen other cities out there that are actually thinking about issuing crypto micro bonds or is that kind of died out a little bit as the crypto market has crashed yeah the chatter on that has been just about how the market has crashed uh, there are other cities not necessarily issuing micro bonds which are, are basically municipal bonds paper that anyone can invest in if you've got like five bucks whereas if you want to buy invest in a city and buy bonds in a city you've got to have at least five grand lying around to throw at it and ideally more like a hundred at least and so this really kind of opens up this, the ability to invest in your locality, this idea of having micro bonds, if it ever happens. I'm glad you looked into that because I've been meaning to look into Berkeley to see where they're at. And it's, I have been writing about that or following it since I want to say 2018. And 2017 so right here. So uh, back okay. in 20, yeah. back so. in 2017 at the, at the bond buyer conference, people that I think eventually went and talked to the city of Berkeley talked to me about Hey, do you know anything about cryptocurrency? I'm like, well, yeah, I know a bit about it. No, I don't recommend it for cities for X, Y, and Z reason. One of the reasons 
is this actually ties perfectly into what we were just talking about is because the environmental impacts of cryptocurrency in order to mine cryptocurrency, the amount of electricity that you must generate is astronomical. There are greener blockchain alternatives these days. One of the Solana, there's, there's a whole bunch of other ones, but those are like a microcosm of the market. I mean, the, the big one, of course, is always going to be Bitcoin and to mine Bitcoin is an incredible amount of energy and power more than people can wrap their heads around. And so my argument is, is look, like if you're putting more climate disclosure in your municipal bond documents, are you seriously going to go out there and issue cryptocurrency? If you're going to do it, make sure it's one of the greener cryptocurrencies, which there are those out there. But yeah, that's not, in my opinion, not a particularly good message. In general, I'm all for blockchain. It is the perfect audit system. It's all about transparency. I think it's fantastic. I just, right now, I don't know if that's the path that cities should go down. I don't know if you have thoughts on that. So it would be neat to be able to have a micro bond. That concept is different than cities issuing their own cryptocurrency, which is happening. Miami, New York City, I want to say Austin was third. And it's all through this company called, is it CityBase, CityCoin, one of those. And it's also this company that essentially the idea is anybody can become a member of this website and mine for cryptocurrency. And they can pick their home city once the city signs up. And then whatever they find, they can give for their city and it will become Mm. that city's cryptocurrency. And the miner gets to keep like 70% and 30% of the value goes to the city. Mm. The way this works is that the value of that coin is actually turned into cash and the city gets the cash. And so Miami, I think, actually withdrew some millions out of its uh, like little bank account there and used it to fund something. But, you know, much like an investment account. So if I'm remembering correctly, so Miami's the value of Miami's, you know, crypto Miami coin is what it's called. The value of it was was really high. And then after the crash in, I want to say May, uh, they withdrew some of it. And so they still got money for doing basically nothing. So that's not bad, but it is just kind of a little bit for the crypto miners, they lost money, (laughs) you know, bad for them. City gets free money. How much free money? It depends on how cryptocurrency is doing. I mean, it's this whole gambling thing, not unlike necessarily what public pensions do (laughs) with, with investments, but it just, it, it does seem like a bit of a risk, not necessarily of taxpayer dollars, but uh, reputational risk for the city that's involved in that. Because when crypto is doing great, everybody's happy with Miami coin. When it's not, nobody's happy with Miami coin. And then Miami looks bad. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I wasn't aware of that. I need to clearly educate myself. That actually sounds pretty cool. Hopefully that mining is more on the cleaner side of blockchain versus the other side of mining, which is very energy intensive. But hey, if the city's getting free money, you know, God bless them. That, that, <laughs> but yes, reputational risk is huge. And you know, how are the rating agencies going to be review that? How do the auditors, how is the SEC? Very interesting. Cool. Look, the whole point of this conversation is there's a lot happening in technologically, in both in climate and, mm-hmm. and, and in the future of cities. And this stuff is not boring. What we, Liz and I just it talked is sexy. About, it, it is sexy. I mean, it's sexy infrastructure part <laughs> yeah, two. It's sexy you know, infrastructure. It's, it's sexy infrastructure, <laughs> disco fever. I don't know what, what we should call this, uh, this, this <laughs> episode, but this is cool stuff because it impacts people. And Liz, you're on the forefront of this stuff, writing out there. How are things going with your subscription service and your newsletter? Tell our listeners where they can subscribe and do a little bit of self-promotion here for us at here at the end. Ah, 
Happily. Thank you for the chance to toot my own horn here. (laughs) So I have a a subscription newsletter on Substack. It's called Long Story Short. It's at substack.lizfarmer.com. And so that's a weekly and, um, you know, it's free. You can do the free subscription if you want. You'll get about half the newsletter. But if you want the full story, that's a paid subscription. And then I also have a free newsletter on Route 50. That comes out twice a month. And it's usually on and it's on one, you know, one thing going on in, in public finance. I promise it's almost always interesting. <laughs> uh, last week, I, I wrote about property tax inequities, for example. So that's what I've got going on writing wise. And I'm, you know, of course, on Forbes, and I've got stuff with the Rockefeller Institute as well, future of work. That's awesome. Very cool. That's very cool. So if any of our listeners want to be really up to date on technology and how that impacts local government and, and local government nerdy stuff that I'm constantly talking about, and you want to hear it from a real expert, not just a half-assed one like me, go subscribe to Liz because she actually knows what she's talking about. <laughs> Uh, yeah, one of my newsletters I'm I'm gonna have soon on long story short is about this talk I've been giving to a couple of different local governments now on the four E's around spending uh, American Rescue Plan money and the money from the Infrastructure and Jobs Act. And the four E's are environment, equity, evidence, and engagement. There it is. <laughs> That's Perfect. great stuff. That's awesome, Liz. Thanks for coming on. This is, I always love talking to you. Liz, you're awesome. Thank you. This is great for oh, um, people guys. in, there's philosophy that talks about environmental ethics. This is great for technology and engineering ethics. And just for anyone who wants to know more about infrastructure and the impacts and how that's relevant to our everyday lives. I love it. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me. It's always, always so much fun. Thanks, Liz. Have a good day. You guys too. Bye. 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 Good is in the Details is produced by Dr. Gwendolyn Dolsky and Rudy Salo. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts and you're enjoying the show, please scroll down to the bottom and hit that five-star review or leave a review. Or you can get in touch with us on Instagram, good is in the Details Pod, or email good is in the Details Pod at gmail.com. And if you'd like to support the show, get extra content, join our book club, check us out on Patreon, patreon.com slash good is in the details. And if you're interested in sunglasses, jewelry, we're talking bracelets rings, necklaces, go to valoriaware.com and enter the offer code GWENDOLIN in all caps, and that'll get you 50% off your first order. Okay, until next time. Bye.